I'm obsessive about my calendar. And I am constantly working with my executive assistant to review it and have strategic conversations about it because your calendar is your strategy. How you spend your time is the first decision that you are making about what matters. And it's so easy for it just to be reactive. And so to me, I have a really, really high bar for meetings. Like if there's a meeting that was not effective, I circle up with the team. We say, why did that meeting not work? Why wasn't that a great use of time for, for people? Because just time is everything. That's, it's, that is your, your most valuable resource. And then I really obsess about making sure that the blocks of time, because you're, there are people that are able to just carve out thinking time for themselves. Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Speaking of world-class companies, there are more incredible startups in the Kleiner portfolio than I've ever seen. When I was operating, I would have begged to be in some of these companies. If you're listening, and we don't do sponsorships on this show, so I figured I'd use this opportunity. If you're listening and you are inspired by the stories of my guests and you want to find the next incredible ride for you, reach out to me. Let's find an amazing job in the Kleiner portfolio. Now let's get to the episode. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Jude. All right, man. I get all these things started the exact same way. I'll read your background back to you. I'll screw it up. Tell me where I screwed up. We'll go from there. Cool? <laughs> okay, perfect. All right. You went to Frankfurt International School, I think in high school. Is that right? In Germany to get things going. And then you went to Duke. You got your BA in poli side, 2011. Then you graduated summa cum laude. Did you overlap with the cameo guys at Duke? I did. I did. did? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're buddies of mine. Oh, yesterday I was sitting in this exact chair and across from me was a fellow named Brian Frank, who's now the COO of Cameo. And Cameo, we did the series B. So I know Steven and Arthur, Devin Townsend, like I know all those guys pretty well. Anyway, I thought you might, because you graduated at the same time, right? Yeah, we were, we were definitely overlapped. I think Steve was a year older than me, but I was in Chicago a couple of years ago and got to have a great lunch with, with Steve and we sort of caught up on trading war stories and it's been fun to watch those guys uh, build what they have. I love it. Well, I'm coming to New York City tomorrow for a couple of months, so we'll all have to go out to dinner or something. Then you went to McKinsey, you're an associate or senior associate, whatever, and you did two years there. Then you stumbled on this company, Compass. You joined five months after it was founded. There was about 30 employees when you joined. This was in 2013, and you've had a hell of a run there, about eight years. Honestly, there wasn't a whole lot for me to screw up there, so I'd even be surprised if, like, what did I screw up? Anything? I think you got it. All right. Okay, so in this conversation, your career generally is centered around Compass, and so... We're going to talk a lot about Compass. Before we do, what was the first job that you ever had? The first job that I remember <laughs> was a basketball camp that I started. And I remember this was like in elementary school. And I was in fourth grade and I started a basketball camp for third graders. And it just, it's one of those funny memories that I have. I was just obsessed with entrepreneurship, like from an early age. I love the idea of getting stuff off the ground and trying to build stuff. And so I started this camp called Fundamental Skills, like fun hyphen demental, right? <laughs> uh, it's really, really clever that way. And it was this camp. And again, it was like fourth graders teaching third graders how to play basketball. And yeah, that's what I always think of as having been my first job and my first foray into entrepreneurship. Were you making paychecks from third graders' parents into your fourth grade wallet? That's what I was doing. <laughs> That's awesome. How did you find Compass? It was sort of like a long, pretty methodical search, honestly. I was at McKinsey at the time, and I spent about six, seven months during which I knew that I wanted to join something really early stage, like 20 to 30 people. And I just, I just read every single tech Series A blog at the time. And I had this huge spreadsheet of every company that was raising money, basically. And I, I had like formal interviews with something like 30 different companies over this six-month span. And Compass was just one on that list. But what I was looking for during that search was pretty specific. I sort of had this idea that there's a lot of things in the search for this company that I wanted to join that I was not going to take into consideration. So I was not going to take into consideration the geography of the company, the industry, the specific business model, what my role was going to be, what my compensation was going to be, all these things that you, you generally uh, may think about making decisions on. And I said I was only going to make the decision based on 
how big the opportunity is. Like, could you defensively say that if this thing really hit, it could be a hundred billion dollar plus once in a generation tech company? And number two, what is the quality of the talent there? Like, could I reasonably say, hey, this is the most talented team that I've ever seen in action? And if those two things were true, I thought that's what I'm looking for. That's the only thing I'm going to solve for and everything else will fall in the line. And that's what hit when I met with the Compass team early on. I was like, well, look, real estate is a $217 trillion asset class, perhaps the, the last great industry that hasn't been fundamentally transformed through technology. And it was the most talented group of people, even at that point, that I'd ever come across that I ever met with. And so those two boxes were checked and, and, and I was all in from the word go. What did talent feel like? What did it look like at the time? When you were evaluating talent and you said it was some of the most unbelievable talent you've ever had, like, what does that mean? Qualify that. It was talent on every dimension that I sort of cared about at the time. So there's leadership, which is, well, how do you think about leadership? Our CEO, Robert, often defines leadership as the ability to ground yourself in reality where you are today to be able to articulate a vision of the future that you're building and to be able to draw the straight line from one to the other and the ability for robert and oriel our chairman and co-founder at the time their ability to talk about the untapped opportunity in real estate that to me was just extraordinary leadership. And it's the type of thing that you just know when you see it. It's like falling in love, right? You know, it makes the hairs on your, your arm stand up and you just feel that there's something special there. And it's to me, it's grounded in that, that sense of vision and articulation of how you get there. I think talent was a, a function of people's track records and the success that they'd achieved and its raw intelligence. It was just like the level of conversation that I was able to have with people. And perhaps above all else, it's this unquantifiable piece of just passion, commitment, grit that these people exuded. While you were putting this spreadsheet together, were you also applying to business school, specifically Harvard? Did you have an acceptance in hand? And were you hedging your bets as you were going through to figure out what the next startup was and think like, well, if I don't find one, maybe I'll go to school. Tell me more about that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly right. So I had an acceptance in hand. I was been accepted to, to Harvard Business School. And so that was sort of always in my mind as the alternative. But at the time, I didn't feel ready yet to go to business school. So I thought, I'm going to go find a really early stage opportunity, join that, help build that. And then perhaps in a year or two, I'll, I'll go to business school. And maybe for the audience listening, actually, I'm really curious, what other companies were on your list? As you think back on that list, what was your judgment like? How lucky did you get finding Compass? Or when you were looking back at those Series A tech blogs, did a lot of those end up hitting. One of the things that is interesting to me is the other company that I was actually furthest along with and, and having conversations with when I finally made the decision was Stripe. Oh, <laughs> oh. Well, uh, for themselves as well, obviously. But obviously along the way, it is fun to think back and see some of the companies that you thought had promise and, and maybe didn't quite emerge. I don't think I want to name any, any names in that category. But Stripe was was the company that I was having some real active conversations with and was the final one that I was sort of designed. Small world, this afternoon, right after this call, I have another recording with the CRO of Stripe. No kidding, that's awesome. Mike Clayville. And he was at AWS at 800 million of revenue or a billion and took it to 24 billion or something. Anyway, he had a pretty good run. All right, that's a good company. So can you give the audience, for those that may not know, 30 seconds, what is Compass? Yeah, for sure. So Compass provides an end-to-end -end platform that empowers our in-house residential real estate agents to deliver just exceptional service to seller and buyer clients. So our platform, the tech platform that we've built, includes this integrated suite of cloud-based software for customer relationship management, for marketing, for client service, for other critical functionality. And it's all custom built by us for the real estate industry and then for enabling our core brokerage services. So we actually function as a real estate brokerage. And fundamentally, we, we just believe that agents are and will continue to be central to residential real estate transactions. So we help them grow their businesses, serve more clients, save time and stand out as valued, trusted, and professional advisors in real estate transactions to their clients. So it's really about putting the real estate agent at the center and figuring out how to build software in order to, to enable them and help them achieve their potential. This company has, correct me if I'm wrong, but over a $6 billion valuation today. It is generating 2x the revenue of the current largest US brokerage. 
It is claimed to be the largest independent, not owned by a brokerage group, real estate company, quantifying that it is representative of about 4% of U.S. home sales in using gross transactional volume or value as the proxy for, for that stat. Market share, we're actually, I think you said 4% of transactions. I think we're actually at 6% now. It's killing it. And it's generally speaking, from personal experience, I see it in higher affluency residential areas is generally what I associate Compass with. So when you joined, I've heard you say, or I've heard someone say talking about you, like you've been promoted a bunch. Like this job that you started with is not the job that you currently have. When you had 30 people there, what was the job? When they're talking to Rob about like, all right, here's what you're going to do. I'm less keen on the title, more on the responsibility. Yeah, I mean, this sort of links to my decision-making process throughout this, which was to say I actually wasn't focused on what the role itself was going to be. My perspective was things are going to be so fluid. In that are you being serious when you say that? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Geo, industry, comp, title, none of those things were a part of the evaluation criteria. No, no. Let me make it sort of very specific for you. The company was in New York and I wanted to be out in San Francisco. My girlfriend at the time was in San Francisco. Everyone was out in San Francisco. I wanted to be in SF, but the company was in New York, but that wasn't part of the decision-making criteria. If I could add my druthers, I, I would have done something that feels like really strategic or like growing the sales team or, or whatever. My title initially encompassed was the manager of FP&A. I didn't like FP&A. I didn't really know how to speak uh, but like that's the job they had. And again, it wasn't part of the decision-making criteria. The salary for the role was $50,000. That was about a 75% pay cut from what I was making at McKinsey. 50K in New York City. In New York City, that's right. Yeah. And the business model wasn't working. The company that I joined had a failing business model. Urban Compass at the time was at a point where we knew the opportunity was there, but we did not have product market fit. So on all of those dimensions, I sort of went actually against the grain of what would normally be good indicators of this as a company to join. But again, by the simple criteria of massive space, massive opportunity and incredible people, like that was the bet that I placed. So what I did for the first month or two back in 2013 was I ran FP&A. I built the first like financial model for the company. I was doing people's receipts. I was sitting there processing paper receipts. Expenses. Expenses for people. I was literally paying our invoices, writing checks by hand, all that stuff. This was 2013-ish. Yeah, this is 2013. How yep. old were you? In 2013, I was 24 years old. Yeah, okay. And so, you know, Job number one is do your job well, like be the best FP&A person that you yeah. can be. So like yeah. that was job number one. But I think pretty quickly we were facing down a crisis. We were running out of money with a business model that didn't work. And so we had to pivot the business and we had to figure out a way to, to find product market fit pretty quickly. And there's a lot of basic infrastructure stuff that we had to do. We had to get the company on board with the pivot, and we had to then start building out the infrastructure to be able to execute the pivot. And the pivot was basically from the initial business model that we had, which was a classic case of innovating for the sake of innovating. We said, what if we create an assembly line experience for New York residential real estate rentals, where basically you're going to have a different person that you interact with for scheduling a viewing, going to the place itself, negotiating the contract, seven different people. And we're like, it's going to be super efficient assembly line style. Mm -hmm. People hated it because yeah. like, why do I have to interact with seven different people <laughs> just to get like through my rental? It's like so classic, like innovate for the sake of innovating instead of to create value. So we had to figure out a way to move from that to saying, hey, wait a sec, we're actually going to make a much bigger bet on the real estate agent and figuring out what do they need to be successful in building for them. And we had to get the company on board with that. And so I spent a lot more time then with, with Robert thinking about, well, how do we actually build the case internally for the pivot? There's a lot of winning hearts and minds and saying, hey, this is the new direction that we're gonna go, proving that out, and then starting to be able to both figure out how to build the funnel. How do you start to bring agents into the business because they became our customer? And then how do you support that? How do you actually operationally make them happy? So I quickly pivoted from the finance role then to starting to take on more of that strategic and operational work. Do you think a key part of that pivot as the company was reframing the customer from the home buyer to the agent? A hundred percent. 
100%. We always knew that the real estate agent was this key part of this, this transition. But the more time that we spent, we realized people love their real estate agent when they have a good one. Like that is someone that they trust an immense amount. And what we realized is the real estate agent was the most profoundly misunderstood professional in the country. And what I mean by that specifically is there are 1.2 million real estate agents in the country, and every one of them was fundamentally misclassified by their brokerage. No one treated them as a business owner, first of all. Everyone treated them as a salesperson. Every real estate agent is a business owner. They have their own brand. They have their own value proposition. They have their own go-to-market strategy, their own culture, everything that a business has, a real estate agent has. And yet they're treated as salespeople. People talk about agents, their literal official titles, licensed real estate salesperson. People talk about selling real estate. It's the entire, they have sales managers, sales meetings, all this stuff. They're not salespeople, they're business owners. And yet the entire industry is built around them as being salespeople. And no one talks about them as their customer, right? Like life isn't going to get better for you if no one thinks that you are their customer. No brokerage was building for real estate agents as their customer. And for us, when we realized those two things, like, wait, no one thinks of the real estate agent as their customer, and no one thinks of them as a business owner instead of as a salesperson, as someone that works for the company, that is an opportunity to fundamentally reframe that and lean into that super hard. You mentioned when you joined, there was clearly not product market fit, and then you started making some tweaks along the way. I'm always really curious. I had a employee number seven from Snowflake on, and now he's the CRO, Chris Degnan. And I asked him a similar question, which was, Chris, what were some of the earliest tells of product market fit? Are there any key moments, homes that were sold, first agents that were successful? Were there any things where you're like, oh my God, this thing is actually working? Is there anything that stands out in your mind? Some mansion that was sold or some <laughs> agent that made a shitload of money? Like maybe yeah. I'm over-dramatizing something that doesn't need to be. Not at all. No. I mean, I remember when the first set of five or six agents, like we recruited and attracted the first set of like five or six agents. And they, they sort of walked in the door and all of us kind of looked at each other and were like, this is it. Like this is like, this is the bet. Like this is either going to work or not. And we sort of looked at these people like these mythical alien species to be like, okay, how <laughs> do we make you happy? And yeah. can we make you happy? And so the philosophy at the time was we are going to do whatever it takes to make these six people successful. Because we lose one of these six people, the whole game is over. And so we we had these like really intense meetings where we're like we will do whatever it takes. And once you started to see that they were being able to be successful at Compass, and think perhaps a moment was when they started bringing their friends in. That's when I was like, oh, wow. Like maybe As we, realtors. As realtors, yeah, yeah. So yeah. their contacts, when they started putting their reputation online saying, hey, I know these 10 people that should be at Compass. And what we then realized was like, wow, the network effects of this are nuts because real estate agents are the most interconnected community of professionals that you can picture, right? If you think about them compared to lawyers or doctors or what have you, real estate agents interact with each other because they're on opposite sides of the deal, collaborating 10, 15, 20 times a day. So every agent knows every agent. And so if you can start to build followership, you know, classic net promoter scores where your people are promoters, they have this entire network of people that they trust that they can start to bring to the company. And so once we started seeing that in action, it was both a reflection of product market fit, right? If people are promoting your product, they're saying, hey, come here. This is actually great. It validated just how quickly it could grow because it's this snowballing flywheel effect. Was the predecessor of high net promoter scores of these real estate agents, them selling a lot of homes, was the reason they told their friends to come join Compass because they were selling because they were making a living? Why were they doing that? I don't think we were candidly good enough yet in 2013, in the early stage, to be having a real impact on their business. So I think that that would be disingenuous to say right out of the gate, those early people came on and all of a sudden they saw a huge impact on their business. I think what they saw was a level of obsession about them that didn't exist elsewhere. They're like, come here, you are the center of the universe at Compass, and a dedication to building technology for them 
in a way that didn't exist anywhere else. And so it was that the power of potential and to be a part of that. There's 68,000 real estate brokerages in the US. The average real estate brokerage employs zero software engineers. So they are not investing in building software for agents. And no one is in a, in a holistic end-to-end way. And so that's, I think, the promise that they saw. And obviously, yeah. every year that's gone by, that's become more and more the case. And now you see the massive impact on their business. But I think in the early days, it was the commitment, the obsession to agents, and the potential of technology. Yeah, the flywheel that you mentioned earlier, I get asked all the time, what kind of culture should we build? And there's only one good one. It's a winning culture. Yeah. And winning cultures are manifested through people winning, closing deals, making money, putting food on the table for their family, supporting the mission of the company, which is driving revenue. And that flywheel starts to become really lethal when people are doing that at scale. So what I mean is like Figma, one of our portfolio companies, Mm -hmm. they haven't had a rep miss their number in three years. Recruiting becomes pretty easy when all of these reps are telling all of their friends we're making so much money. And maybe money is not the main driver. Maybe it's impact and value. Maybe it's partnering with amazing customers, but they're all killing it. And so once you have this amazing foundation of people, then to your point, that flywheel just starts to spin because they're telling everybody, come join us, right? Engineers start to hear about that, right? That means the equity is gonna be worth more because they have higher multiples to raise on. So I think it is a really interesting snowball effect that has a lot of analogies to my world too. No question. And I think it speaks to the power of momentum. And just, it's something that we spend a lot of time talking about, something I spend a lot of time thinking about, which is so much of building a company and trying to realize your potential, realize your, your vision is just about how do you make sure that you blow through obstacles and keep the momentum going in the right direction because it's so hard to pick up once you've lost it. Yeah. So the early days, maybe you could make the argument now that the real estate agent is the product. Certainly in the early days, there was no other product. So if that's the case and we're in a human capital business, then you got to find the best talent. And maybe, again, I'm making something up that doesn't exist, but if at the time you and the team's thinking was, if they're not successful, these first five or six people, we have nothing. What did you do? I don't think everybody has the same spreadsheet that you do evaluating opportunities in the same way that you did. Are you just going and talking to a bunch of people and saying, who's the best freaking realtor you've ever met in your entire life? And then just paying them higher commissions? What was the strategy for the early days when literally there was no product? Yeah. So I think this was sort of one of the the defining moments. It's a great question. And it's so core to, I think, the DNA of the Compass growth story. Because basically what, what happened, I remember this very distinctly, is we had this conversation where we said, well, okay, so our fundamental thesis is going to be that real estate agents are CEOs, not salespeople. And that we are going to treat them as customers, that we are going to feel like we work for them, not the other way around. And so I remember asking Robert the question to say, well, if real estate agents are the customer of the brokerage, which is how we think about it, literally real estate agents pay the brokerage, they are the customer of the brokerage. Why is it that no brokerage has a sales force, right? A sales force that goes out and actually sells to real estate agents to bring them into their company. 68,000 real estate brokerages, none of them has a sales force to bring their customers to the platform. The way that they do it is historically, it's this really inefficient whining and dining things, right? Like the head of the brokerage will go and sit down and have a a steak dinner with this person over a course of months, perhaps entice them to come join their company. So he said, there's no good reason for that. If you really believe that they're your customer, let's build an enterprise sales force to go pursue these people. And so that's exactly what we did. And instead of this single point recruiting thing, where it has to be the CEO of the company or whatever doing it, we hired these really hungry, really sharp enterprise salespeople from DIN, Salesforce, all these various companies. And we said, hey, just do what you've always done, except your customers, the real estate agent, and you are selling them on coming to to companies. And so we brought them into our offices. Instead of like a steak dinner, we did a tech demo and we treated them as a business and said, hey, this is the impact that this could have on your business. And this is how you could realize your potential. So and we put all our eggs in in that basket to say, we're going to treat this like a sales motion, which is not emotion that had ever existed in this industry. And it worked. And we went from like one 
initial rep to 100 in, in, in no time. Just blew that team out as big as we could. And the amazing thing in our world was that you sort of mentioned this question of like, do you go and just ask everyone who the, the best real estate agent is? Well, yeah, it's that. And it's again, it's the network effect of you ask every real estate agent, hey, who are your five or 10 other agents that you respect the most? And then you've got the list. But also the incredible thing is it's the most public population that you could possibly be needing to go after. Real estate agents want to be found. And all the information about them is publicly available. I know every single house that every single agent sold. It's literally on the public record. And so, again, this had never been done in this industry. Just get a spreadsheet, stack ranking the production of every single real estate agent in every city. Just by number of homes sold and number of dollars of those homes. Totally. These were the moments where we're like, oh, wow, we're the only <laughs> game that's, that's, yeah. that, that's think about it this way. And then just start hammering through and getting on the calls. And the thing that was crucial from the very get-go was leaning into culture there, right? It wasn't just a numbers game. It was saying, hey, there's a community aspect of this. So you're going to have to make sure that there are some people that are jerks that don't have great reputations, what have you, that we are going to sidestep, even if they really want to be a compass, because we want to build this like really tight-knit culture and community. But yeah, that was the approach of starting to build this go-to-market growth function. So let's assume, and I don't want to overcomplicate this, but let's consider this a marketplace where you have buyers on one hand and realtors on the other. Are the realtors your supply or demand? Question that I'm trying to get to is, if you solve for the realtor first, then that in some way is demand. I want to say it's supply, but in some way it's kind of demand. And then you go get the supply, which is the buyer of the home. Am I thinking about that wrong? The way that I would think about it is... I think of a marketplace as it's your responsibility to bring two different parties together that wouldn't have found their way to each other otherwise. Mm -hmm. I think the better way to think about Compass is a B2B2C business in a world in which no one is operating that way. And yeah. so what I mean is the real estate agent is a business. So that's our B2B component. We think of them as businesses. Real estate agents have their own set of clients that exist already. And they're extremely loyal to the agent. The set of buyers and sellers that agents are working with, they're loyal to the agent, not to the brokerage. And the way that you know that is when agents come and join Compass, 99.9% .9 of their clients come with them. And yep. it's not because they're so excited about Compass. It's because they're so excited about their real estate agent and the connection that they have with them. So our view is we serve the real estate agent. That's our client. That's the B2B component. And they serve the buyer and the seller. And that's the C component. And obviously, there are things that we can do that help agents get connected to more buyers and sellers that help them grow their business. But we really look at it as that is their client and they are our client. Yep, that makes sense. So on the B2B, on the C section of that part of the business, Compass, in my mind, has a reputation or a brand for the higher end of the market which means like more expensive, generally more well-to-do folks. And again, maybe that's wrong, but that's just my personal experience. Mm -hmm. Was there early customers of your real estate agents that also kicked off the flywheel, that started to propel and perpetuate the brand? If I'm making a movie script out of this, just tell me. <laughs> you kind of need some splashy houses, some celebrities, some people that are like, accreting value to the brand. Ultimately, it is the realtor, but the realtor needs those customers to come yeah. and buy expensive, nice houses. And was there any of that in the early days where you're like, oh my God, Matt Damon just bought a house from Compass? Yeah. So yes, but it's all the agent. And this is the thing. The agent already has that Rolodex, yep. right? The agent has all those connections themselves. That's what makes them such a powerful business entity. Yep. And so for us, the big question was initially, can Compass hang at that level? Can we have that Matt Damon conversation and have him be like, yeah, I'm going to go with you to this unknown brand, even though it doesn't have the household name that one of these other companies has. That was the real test for us. And we really did lean into the luxury side of things right out of the gate. And the reason is it's just a classic you have to win and establish yourself at the high end in this industry. In and relationships matter the most there. It's less transactional. That is also exactly right. But the point is, it's very hard to swim upstream. If you're sort of mid-market, very, very difficult to then 
if you're H&M to start to try to sell it at Chanel in real estate. But if you're Chanel, you can always go down to H&M. So that was the strategy. But then the, the yes, yeah, so the big piece was, hey, we were going to send these agents into listing appointments, presentations where they're pitching for properties, and we're going to give them the compass pitch book and playbook and brand and story. And was it going to be able to hang? And it did. It kind of reminds me of a franchise model where each franchisee is their own CEO. However, there's a set of shared services that come from corporate that enable the franchisee to be great at what they do. McDonald's did this incredibly well, where they had the specific specs for the ways that burgers and fries should be made most efficiently in the kitchen so that their franchisee could then churn out more product. And so it kind of reminds me of a shared services model where you give them a set of tools to then go execute on their business. Is that fair? So the funny thing is franchising has a very specific connotation in real estate, right? Which we've actually moved away from because a lot of these companies out there that have scaled right. nationally right. are franchises. And we very specifically have grown the way that we have all owned and operated. And so it's just interesting to use that analogy because we have zagged when, when everyone has zigged on that right. direction we've wanted to be able to retain the full control that you start to lose with franchising. But what you're talking about in terms of thinking about the agent that way, it's not that far from, from how we think about it. I think a, a good comparison for how I often frame it is actually Shopify to sort of try to think about it, mm -hmm. where Shopify is this platform, this back end that empowers all these small business entrepreneurs to be able to compete. And we think about the exact same way for our real estate agents, which is that we are the platform on which these entrepreneurs sit and we allow them to be able to achieve their potential to do things to compete in a way that they couldn't if they didn't have that platform beneath them. That makes total sense. Let's go down this path a little bit. So the COO of Shopify is a fellow named Harley Finkelstein, and he was probably at Shopify as early as you were at Compass, okay? And I wouldn't say they're the same growth, but both explosive companies, okay? And I don't know if you've heard this. I'll send this to you after the podcast. It's a much better podcast than I could ever produce. But he talks about, I think on Tim Ferriss, how the biggest challenge that he has had at this company is scaling ahead of its torrential growth. Because there are not very many compasses or Shopify's. And it is unnatural to grow that quickly. To go from zero to hundreds of people is very unnatural to have offices that just get outgrown so fast. It just doesn't make any sense. It's not a normal thing. And I see this in the portfolio all the time. In fact, I was at a happy hour with one of our CROs yesterday and they are growing like crazy. Zero to 20, 20 to 45 ARR, 45 to 100. That's unnatural. And so what she was saying was, Jubin, I am really struggling to scale ahead of the breakneck speed of this business, like me, I am struggling. Like I can't grow as quickly as this business is growing. What Harley said was that basically once Shopify got to a point where he started becoming insecure about his growth to track to the company, he's like, we were Shopify, kind of like your compass. And the way he described it was that he would abuse his now newfound status to then reach out to anybody that has seen that scale of growth and just become a learn-it-all. And he surrounded himself with so many people and he would just pick their brain all the time. Hey, I'm Harley from Shopify. I'm the COO here. I have a lot to learn. Can you help me? I thought about you. You were 24 when you joined. That was seven years ago, eight years ago. I think you probably acutely feel that even more. Like I imagine there's probably serious insecurity that comes along with that. Like you're still young. And it all hit home for me when I watched you on stage at the 2018 Compass Retreat. And I watched it on YouTube. What theater was that? <laughs> it was the Gotham Theater in LA. There was thousands of people. <laughs> Is that right? There was yeah. thousands. Like You yeah. were looking up and it was like people in the rafters yeah. and all of your agents, all of your CEOs, you know, all of your franchise owners, whatever you want to call them. And I was watching what was at the time a 29, 28-year-old guy, my age, on stage. And I was like, oh my God, he is trying to scale at this company. 
yeah. at breakneck speed. And he's so young. And I thought, first of all, you did a really great job on stage. And I was like, I'd throw up on stage. I would wither. <laughs> I, would, I would absolutely wither. What is your mindset like? How do you think about that? How do you become a learn-it-all? Yeah. How do you scale at compass speed? I think that there's a component of it, which is just, that's what it's all about. Every time you have that moment of insecurity, every time you have that feeling of like, wow, I'm in over my head, or that sense of, I can't possibly keep up with the rate at which this company is scaling. I think there's a component of that, which is just like taking a breath and being like, this is the dream. Like, this is why I joined this company in the first place, to be challenged and challenged and challenged, to be able to go to battle every single day and test yourself against the limits of what's possible in, in scaling a company. And so I think it comes with all of that self-doubt, all of those uncertainties and insecurities and all that stuff. But I, for me, I found it really helpful to just be like, this is why I'm doing this. This is what I live for. Practically, in terms of how you adapt and how I think about that idea of evolving with the business. I think it is so crucial to force yourself to live in the future and to force yourself to be comfortable with how you spend your time adapting really, really rapidly. Jeff Bezos always talks about it in a way that resonates so much with me, this idea of the degree to which you live in the future, meaning how much of your time do you spend thinking about what's one year, two year, three years ahead versus how much time are you actually spending operating and working on the business today is a great indicator of how well the core operation is functioning because you want to be able to be in the future. I think of that notion a lot. And obviously, if you live in the future too much in a high growth company, yeah, you're not executing on the present. <laughs> you're not executing, that's right. But I really force myself to say, I need to be able to be 12 months in the future. I need to be able to know exactly and, and articulate to my team, what's the North Star 12 months from now? Like, what is this company going to look like 12 months from now at any given point in time and be working backwards from that and be really, really comfortable with how I spend my time evolving dramatically based on what the evolving needs of the company are. All of this is compounded with the fact that real estate is like kind of an old boys club, stodgy industry. It's real estate for Christ's mm -hmm. sake. Even the age thing, like I already have a knot in my stomach saying my age on the podcast. Yeah. And I think it's because I've always been like, I'm sitting in Kleiner's office, you know, and I, before this, I was managing people that were my parents' age. And I often felt that because of my age, there was a negative stigma around ability. Mm. And I fucking, that's going to get edited out, hated that. <laughs> I hated that because I was like, I don't get it. Like, just because I'm young, that does not mean that I don't have the ability to do the job that needs to be done. Did you feel that insecurity ever in the rise? No, I definitely did. I definitely did. I will say, I think I'm very fortunate in the environment that I'm in. You talk about real estate as an old boys club. I would challenge that a little bit in the sense that real estate is actually one of the most diverse and inclusive industries in the country. If you think about just from a stat standpoint, there's two thirds of 1.3 million real estate agents are women. 64% of people are over 50. There, there's just inherent in this a sense of diversity that exists that I think is sort of core to that, that industry that I actually think makes it accepting of people that are diverse for whatever reason. Age and being young is just a different form of diversity in that, in that sense. I also think I'm very fortunate that the Compass environment, right? It's a very, very low ego meritocracy. People care about your abilities, not your resume, not your age. It's about what do you bring to the table. And that's an environment that you can thrive in as a young person. Not every environment is like that. So I certainly think I've been very, very fortunate in terms of the general acceptance that I've met along the way with people being able to put egos out of the way and say, let's get to work and let's build something no, no matter what your age is. I think part of it is also how do you handle yourself? How do you manage your day-to-day -day when you are a lot younger than, than the people around you? And I think a core component of that really is being comfortable in what you can and can't bring to the table, right? I mean, one thing that you don't have as a young leader is decades of experience, right? You just like flat out don't have that. You can't fake experience. And, you know, people 
try to belittle that, especially sort of in the, the Silicon Valley world, like, oh, experience is overrated or everything. I don't think that's true. I think experience is really, really valuable. It's appropriately rated. Yeah. 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 And so you don't have that and you can't fake it and, and people know it when you're faking it. And so you can surround yourself with people who have a lot of experience, who have that thing that you can't possibly produce as a, as a young person. And then you can really lean into the things that are your strengths, that do make you distinctive, that have nothing to do with, with experience. Things like work ethic, things like your inherent sense of judgment, like your passion, your ability to reason through problems. Those don't rely on experience. Those aren't impacted by your age. And I think being really comfortable with that idea of being yourself authentically and leaning into the places that you can create value and not trying to pretend that you have things that, that you don't, I think sort of helps you navigate through that. Yeah, I think that's a well-articulated answer. When you think about living in the future, how do you cultivate that learning for a year from now? How does Rob learn? How do you figure out what's next when you've never done it? No one's done it. No one has done what you're doing. What are the things that you do in the present to best equip yourself to live in the future? Does the question make sense? Yeah, it totally does. I think you're exactly right. There are not a lot of case studies for this. And there's no single playbook, I, I don't think, that you can just follow. I think being able to have conversations with mentors that you trust, I think people that have seen a lot of high-growth companies, I think that's really helpful in terms of starting to give you a sense for what are the types of pitfalls that exist, what are the, the types of things that you should be thinking about. But I really do think that there is something to be said for the fact that the people around your table, your leadership team, the people that you've decided to put in the seats that they're in, your direct reports, and you, no one is going to know your business, even 5%, 10% as well as you do. And so for me, a lot of living in the future is about creating the space for it, to be able to do that with your team, to be able to say, okay, well, we know what we want to accomplish financially for the business. What do we need to be thinking about? What are the trends that are emerging? What's actually happening? And so this is not rocket science, but like I'm, I'm bringing all my leaders together. You know, I'm doing this about once every six, eight weeks at this point to just be able to whiteboard and say, what is going to matter 12 months from now? And having that conversation because you can get patterns from people externally, but no one's going to know your business like you and your people. And if you give yourself the space for it, if you allow yourself to be proactive instead of reactive, you can avoid a lot of the pitfalls that are emerging. This is going to sound like a weird question, but what does your calendar look like? When you said creating space, I take that quite literally. And I think it's very hard to be creative and live in the future if all you're doing is running around in meetings. Yeah. I think the problem is that when you become an executive, like you are managing a business then meetings and your time is generally around managing, which then takes away from the opportunity to have space to create the future. How do you think about that? I'm obsessive about my calendar. And I am constantly working with my executive assistant to review it and have strategic conversations about it because your calendar is your strategy. How you spend your time is the first decision that you are making about what matters. And it's so easy for it just to be reactive. And so to me, I have a really, really high bar for meetings. Like if there's a meeting that was not effective, I circle up with the team. We say, why did that meeting not work? Why wasn't that a great use of time for, for people? Because just time is everything. That's, it's, that is your, your most valuable resource. And then I really obsess about making sure that the blocks of time, because you're there are people that are able to just carve out thinking time for themselves. I want to be in meetings. I want to be in meetings back to back to back all throughout the day because I want to be pushing the ball forward. But I want those blocks of time to really reflect my priorities at, at any given point in time. And if you block in those times, you just have to do it. Like for me, it's things like coaching and things like future planning that if you don't just put them on the calendar, they don't happen. And to me, it's, it's just about making sure that there's dedicated time carved out for it and, and treating it as sacred. So I do a similar thing, which is that this is maybe stupid, but I do a priority matrix. I've done it my entire career. And I literally write down every single thing that could come up in a given day, week, or year. And I put them all in quadrants. And the most sacred quadrant is high impact, high priority. And I put the least amount of things in there. And it's my top two to three priorities that I really want to live and die by. Like, this is where I should spend my time. And every week I look with my team and reflect back to say, was 90% or more of my time in a given week in support of one of those three things. And if it wasn't, then I'm mismanaging my time. And often to your point, 
it's not necessarily the calendar blocks that are or aren't there, but the priority inherently has something to do, maybe in your case, around living in the future, around what strategy planning looks like six months from now. And so there's something really special about being retrospective about assessing thoughtfully the time and then the priorities that align to the way that that time is being spent. I think that the most constructive visual metaphor that I've found for how you manage your time in business is the old rocks, pebbles, sand in a jar analogy, right? This idea that you're trying to fit rocks, pebbles, and sand into this jar. And your most important things, the things that are in your top right quadrant are your rocks. And rocks are your most important things. The pebbles are the things that are like, you know, core day-to-day operating the business priorities. The sand are all the fires, all the inbound stuff, all your emails that come in, all that stuff. If you start by pouring the sand into the jar, then putting in the pebbles, you literally don't have space in the jar for the rocks. But if you start by putting the rocks in and say, no world, do I not put the rocks into the jar first, then you put in the pebbles and then you pour in the sand, everything can fit. I think about that every week when I think about, am I putting the rocks in the jar first? I actually think about it similarly. I think it's a really interesting metaphor in a given day. And so I even in a given day start with my rocks. So the things that I generally have the highest priority are a lot of the time, not easy things. The sand or the easier emails, whatever it is, the higher priority, lower impact stuff is usually the sand, not the rocks. And so even in a given day, I try and take down at least one boulder, at least one boulder to start my day, to have a foundation, to get that done. And then I can start putting some sand and not every day am I perfect at it, but I try and start the day with that thing. Okay. I have one or two more questions. Were there low points for you? Like this ride is incredible. You were employee number 30 and now your organization is what? 1300 plus and there's 14,000 real estate agents. In terms of the size of teams and so on, I think you said like 1,300 people in my org and 14,000 agents. I think the numbers there are like 1,800 and we're at now 21,000. Yeah, it's this awesome story. I think a lot of people miss how hard and gnarly it can be. Were there any points of this sucks? (sighs) One of the things that has perhaps insulated me from that is how many people I've brought into the business. And when you look at the like Compass family tree, like just the number of people that that I've recruited, that I've managed, that I'm responsible for, the toughest moments for me have been when things are not going well. Because there have been multiple moments over these eight years where it's literally been like, I'm not 100% sure we're going to make it. (laughs) Even with all the crazy success that we've had, we've had some really tough, rocky moments. And I think in those moments, just speaking totally honestly, like I think about all the people that have bet their careers on what I've said was going to happen. And I think about my responsibility to them And so it's kind of a weird thing that then it's much more about focusing on delivering for this group of people as opposed to how it impacts me personally. Is there something that sears in your memory of those moments that you just described of like, are we going to make it? Are there any that particularly stand out to you? Yeah, I mean, we've talked about sort of the very early days in the pivot, right? Like that was clearly like, do you actually have a business model? that works. I think another one that sticks out to me was when we first started our market expansion, when we Mm -hmm. first started moving into new cities outside of New York. And so at that point, I was running everything that was growth related. So expansion to new markets, sales, M&A, everything like that. And so we we did our first market launch into Washington, D.C. And we did it too early. Like our value proposition was not strong enough to be able to support that type of launch. And we were just learning on the job, right? Like we made every mistake that you could possibly make when you launch a new market. We didn't invest enough in leadership. We didn't take into account the local nuances of the market. We didn't have a playbook for how to replicate all the core activities. We didn't have things documented, every mistake that you could make. And We were teetering on the edge of failure in those early days in our first expansion market. And I could see the pain that we were creating for the set of agents that were there. We literally, like, I was having the conversations with the people and they were saying, you're making our life harder, not easier. And it's the opposite of, of what we're there to do. And I remember thinking, 
this is it. If Compass fails in its first expansion into a new market, that could be it because that's all that anyone extrapolates. Like, how do you then launch yeah. in a new and a different market if you failed in this first place? And we were not that close to it. So I spent about six months where I just lived in DC then. I just went super deep and like said, we're going to do whatever it takes to make this thing successful. But it felt like one of those moments where it's like, we have to come out of this alive and make this a success for us to be able to keep the momentum going in the right direction. And I imagine there was existential questions of like, oh my God, were we just in New York City? We just had a great market. Like, did we just kind of stumble on this lucky thing and we don't actually have a business. We just have a good market. That's exactly it. Yep. That's awesome, man. Well, dude, this has been incredible. Thank you. I've already taken too much of your time. I wrap these things the same way. The first is, what does grit mean to you? I think grit shows up in people when they care so passionately about something that they don't let little or big setbacks slow down their pace. And I don't think you can teach how to care, how to obsess about making progress, but I think it's the, the most powerful trait in business. Are you hiring? What are you hiring for? Any key roles that you have on your team that you want to highlight? How would someone get a hold of you if they're interested in one of these roles? Yeah, we are hiring everywhere. So the chances are if you're a real estate agent or you know a real estate agent and they do a great job and they're great people, chances are we want to have a conversation with them. Open door on that front. And then, you know, on, on our team, we are constantly on the operations side looking for strategic leaders, people with, uh, right now we're doing a lot of scaling work. So anyone with sort of continuous improvement, sort of strategic planning and operational chops should reach out for sure. And then I'm sure we're the only company in the country that's thinking about software engineers and product leaders yeah. <laughs> that, uh, that, that we're trying to bring in, but you know, can't yeah. scale that fast enough either. What's the best way to get a hold of you? Rob at compass.com. Rob, thank you. Appreciate Thanks it. So much, really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes with CROs from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.